latest start ever. I stayed on the West Coast for too long, I guess. Okay, we're gonna get started. Water started. Stayed out on the west coast for too long. We're starting 20 minutes late, so everything's a little bit more chill out there. When we lived in Utah, everything would start like 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Oh, yeah. Yep, it's just the way it goes. Well, good morning, guys. Good to be back with you. Um, after Bruce Hollister came last week, it was great to hear from him. Hopefully, you guys got to hear that. Um, just really cool. I mean, Andrew and I were talking just. Amazing to have people. We had Steven here last month. We had Bruce. Okay. All these people from different churches, different denominations coming and speaking. And it's just, you know, we have different distinctives, different beliefs on certain things. But we're unified in the gospel and in, um, and in Christ. So it's just, it's just great to have that and to get to have these guys come and, and speak for us. So. If you want to stand with me this morning, we'll begin with the call to worship. This is taken from the prophet Isaiah. And there's a lot of interesting imagery in here. And many people try to take this in a very literal way. It talks about the mountain of Jerusalem, Mount Zion being the highest mountain in the world. And there's a lot of confusion about, you know, is this sort of some end times prophecy where Jerusalem is going to be higher than Mount Everest or something. But in the language of the prophets, what this is communicating is really what Christ would come and do. He is the mountain of the Lord, the meeting place between God and man. And so when we say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, we're really calling out what we're doing right now. We are coming to the mountain of the Lord. We, Hebrew says we are Worshiping in the heavenly Jerusalem, in the heavenly Mount Zion. And so that's what our worship is doing this morning. Maybe that sounds charismatic and crazy, but that's what the Bible says. <laughs> so we're worshiping on this mountain, and there's just some beautiful language in here. So I'll read the bold section if you'll follow along after me and read the non-bold. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen. If you want to remain standing and turn to hymn number 57, we'll sing a newer song for us. Praise to the Lord.
each week after we've been called to worship, we're reminded um, of our need to not only weekly, but daily, moment by moment, confess our sins. And we see a model of this in Psalm 51. This is the psalm written by David after he's just been confronted with his own sin. If you remember, he slept with Bathsheba, and then he had her husband killed in battle so he could have her as a wife. Terrible, egregious sins, adultery, murder. And he comes before the Lord after he's confronted by the prophet. And he's made aware of his sin. And we see in here a model for how, when we're convicted of our sin, how to bring these and confess these sins to the Lord. He says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Notice that he says here, against you and you only have I sinned. Even though he sinned against these other people, he sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against her husband, he recognizes that his sin is ultimately and first and foremost against God. So let's pray this prayer of confession this morning as we're reminded of our own need to confess our sins. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are the Lord Almighty, the King of creation. Holy is your name. And as we come before you this morning, we confess our need of cleansing. Against you only have we sinned, and before you only can we be cleansed. Have mercy on us, O Lord, because of the will and work of Christ. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to put our sin to death and walk in the light of the Lord. Amen. If you want to remain standing and turn to him, 246, we'll sing a very old classic hymn, but a new one for us, Be Thou My Vision. Um, many of you have probably heard this hymn before, just wanted to read through a couple of the verses. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, be all else but not to me. That's a very strange way of wording that, but it, basically what he's saying is, may everything else be as nothing to me. Compared to you. Save that thou art. Be thou my best thought in the day and the night, both waking and sleeping, thy presence, my light. And he goes on to say, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Be thou mine inheritance now and always. Be thou and thou only the first in my heart, O high King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Just some beautiful poetry there talking about, may I not have seek treasure in this world, riches in this life, but may you be my treasure above everything else. So we'll sing this morning. Andrew's going to lead us. Just a helpful hint. Maybe some of you have heard it in a different um, wording. The second and the third lines are my, maybe slightly different than you're used to. So Andrew will do it, and we'll just pick it up as we go. So.
Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. David here is assured that if God washes him, he will be clean. If God purges his sin, it will be purged. And that's our assurance this morning. We cannot take away our own sins. We can't do enough things. We can't have more good in our column than bad. God has to cleanse us. And if God cleanses us, we are clean. So let's pray this morning together, assured that God is able to cleanse us. Lord, we thank you for your great work through Christ on the cross. And this morning we come before you knowing that we are in great need, all of us. 
Every one of us is in great need, whether we recognize it or not this morning. We pray that you would help us to see how much we need you. How much we need to be cleansed by you. And just as David prayed, have mercy on me, we pray that you would have mercy on us, Lord. Mercy is wrath being withheld, Lord. And we deserve your just punishment for our sins. But this morning we look to Christ who stood in our place for sinners like us and took the wrath that we deserve so that we might be made right. This morning, Lord, would, be, would we be assured of that, that for those who have put their faith in Christ and are turning from their sin, they will be cleansed. May we put our faith and hope and trust in that this morning, Lord. We pray for um, your church this morning. We pray that as the gospel is preached around the world, that sinners might be brought to the revelation of their sin and they might come to faith in Christ. We pray that um, your, your, your people would be assured this morning that they would be matured in their faith, that they would grow in grace and godliness, and that they would come to a knowledge of you this morning. Um, we pray for the recent loss of uh, someone in our community, Ashton Hourswald. We pray for his wife and his family, and we pray that you would comfort them and all those affected during this season of loss. Lord, death is such a difficult thing. But for those of us that are in Christ, we have a great hope that death is not the final step, but it is a portal from this life to the next. And so we just pray you would be with that family this morning and all those mourning his loss today. Um, we pray that you would be with us. We, pr- you, we know that you promise to be with us where two or three are gathered in your name. You are there in the midst of them. And this morning we pray that we would worship you this morning in spirit and in truth and we know that you are present with us lord so we pray you'd be with us throughout this morning throughout the worship throughout the sermon and every part of this service lord that you'd be glorified and that we would come to know you more Uh, we pray all these things in your son's name amen our confession of faith look like might look familiar for those of us that were here this morning for our catechism class Um, Confession of faith is where we simply talk about or confess, rather, the great truths of our faith that have been passed down for hundreds of years. And this Orthodox Catechism question, question 19, asks this. How do you come to know that Christ is the only mediator? Would you read with me the answer? Out of the gospel, which God first made known in paradise... And afterward, he did spread by the patriarchs and prophets and portrayed and shattered it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And finally, he accomplished it through his only begotten son. Amen. You guys can be seated this morning. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 4. We'll be continuing our study through the Gospel of John. Again, um, it's great to have Bruce with us last week. He was also in the Gospel of John and talked about the power and presence of God in Christ on the first day of the week and that proclamation of peace to the disciples. It was great to have a break from preaching and get to hear the word. So, so I kind of left you guys in suspense. It would have been about three weeks ago 
we, we started the first half of this account of the Samaritan woman at the well. And just to rehash, because one week is a long time for my memory anyway, let alone three weeks. So maybe you guys have no idea what we're talking about. So it's always good to uh, remember where we came from. So in John chapter 4, we have the account of Jesus and the woman at the well. And it's a st- striking account for a couple reasons, and you might remember some of those. The first off is that this woman is a Samaritan. She's of the people of Samaria. They're this hated group by the Jews, not only because they're heretics, they worship these false gods, they mix the worship of God and Yahweh with these idols. So not only are they heretics, but they're half-breeds. They've married these other nations, and it's just a mess. And the Jews do not like Samaritans. So Jesus speaking to her is shocking, not only because she's Samaritan, not only because she's a woman and nobody spoke publicly to women in those days, definitely not about theology and what they talked about. So she's a Samaritan, she's a woman, but she's also a known sinner. She's had five husbands and the one she's with is not her husband. And so for all of those reasons, it would be shocking that Jesus would go and talk to her. It would be completely shocking. And we see their interaction in the first part of John chapter 4. He comes to her at the well. She's getting water at the hottest part of the day, which indicates to us that she doesn't want to be with the other women that are getting water. She's ashamed to go with the other women. She wants to go when no one's there. And yet we read in John chapter 4 that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. That he has a divine initiative. He is pursuing this woman. He knows she's going to be there. And he meets with her there at the well. And they have this interaction. And he starts talking to her about living water that he can give her. And she's confused. (laughs) She's like, you don't have a bucket. How are you going to give me water? And he says, the water that I will give to you will never run dry. The water that you were going to give me, people are going to get thirsty again. I'm going to get thirsty again. But the water that I will give to you will be a spring of water welling up in you to eternal life. You'll never be thirsty again. And we see their interaction. They go back and forth. She continually is confused. She thinks he's talking about the external, this physical water at the well. And he's pointing her to these great spiritual realities. That he is the only one that can bring living water, truly satisfy her desire. So we see him confront her sin, this past that she's had, and even the current sin that she's in. And he does it in this gentle way, but yet he still confronts her sin, right? He doesn't just ignore it. But she doesn't want to talk about that, so she starts talking about worship. And we we had a little um, sermon where we just talked about spirit and truth there. But Jesus is patient with this woman. He's not quick. He's not offended when she tries to change the subject. And he's patient with her. And we see that he wants to show her that she's been trying to be satisfied in all these other things. And hopefully we can relate to that in a lot of ways. We try to be satisfied with the things of this world, whether it's entertainment, comfort, fame, sex, money, whatever it is. We try to find our satisfaction in that. We, try to, we have this thirst in us as creatures that have fallen. And we want to be satisfied. We have this desire to be satisfied. And so we seek it out in all these 
other ways. And Jesus here recognizes that. He uses water as an illustration. And he points her to himself, saying, I'm the one that's going to bring true satisfaction. And by the end of the account, where we left off last week, verse 26, he reveals to her that he is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one mediator between God and man. He's the one that's going to come and save his people from their sins and truly satisfy them with himself. And so we left off there last time. And so this week we're going to see the response, not only of this woman, what is her response to this revelation of Christ? We're going to look at the disciples' response to his interaction with the woman and the implications of that. And then we'll look at the response of the whole city of Samaria and one of the cities of Galilee, these group of Jews. So it was helpful for me to think of it like this. We're going to look at the response of the woman and the response of the disciples. Then we'll look at the response of the Samaritans and the response of the Jews. So we're going to look at verses 27 through 45. But really at the end, we should be asking ourselves, what is our response to the revelation of Christ? We're going to see all these different responses this morning. Christ is going to speak. Some people are going to speak. But ultimately, the question we need to ask ourselves is, what is our response to the risen Christ? And what, what should it look like? What does it look like for ourselves? So if you want to follow along with me in verse 27, I'll read verse 27 through 45. I'll pray for us, and then we'll look at God's word. I'll start back at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say, do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they said to him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard it ourselves. And we know that this indeed is the Savior 
of the world. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning, and we ask that you would bless um, the reading of your word and the proclamation of your word, Lord. And this morning, as we look at all these responses to the revelation of Christ, pray this morning that we would be like the woman who, even though she was convicted of her sin, she saw the Christ and she confessed him. She said, come and see, come and see. And may that be our cry this morning. May we come and see in the public proclamation of the gospel. May we see our great need this morning, like this woman. May we see our great need, that we are those who have sinned, who are in great need of a Savior. And may we look no further than the proclamation of the gospel, that for those who put their faith and hope and trust in Christ this morning and turn from their sin, there is great hope. So may we be those this morning who have hope. And even though we're distracted by many things this morning, um, there's many things that are going on in our, in our world around us, in our lives, in our own individual circumstances this morning. May we look to you this morning and trust and hope in you and you alone. Give us the eyes of faith this morning and may we know that you hold us in your hand. The one who even the winds and waves obey. You hold us in your hand this morning. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. A lot going on. A lot of verses to cover this morning. Um, and lots to see. So I won't uh, belabor the point anymore. So we saw last time with this woman at the well, this great revelation of Christ. Nowhere else, really, in all of the gospel accounts, do we see Jesus reveal himself more clearly than in verse 26 there. He says, I who speak to you am he. Nowhere else. Jesus, with the Pharisees, he uses very kind of cryptic language. He talks in parables about himself and his kingdom. Nowhere else do we see him reveal himself more clearly. And we can even contrast this with Nicodemus last week, last in chapter 3, the previous chapter. Nicodemus is this great religious leader. And Jesus continues to talk in these almost parable-like phrases. You must be born again. You must be born by water and the Spirit. He doesn't reveal to Nicodemus in this clear language that he is the Christ, that he is the one that's come to save sinners. And so it's amazing that this woman that's a Samaritan, that's a known sinner, he reveals himself so clearly to her. And I think there's a lot to be said with that. And so we saw that last time, this clear revelation of who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, he's the Messiah. And we see the continuation of that this morning. So in verse 27, we see that 
It was only Jesus and this woman at the well. The disciples had gone off to go get food. And they come back and they're amazed that he's talking with the woman. Right? Like I said, this would have been a no-no. This would have been something that you don't do. You definitely don't talk to Samaritan. And you definitely don't talk to a woman that's not your wife in public. This breaks a lot of rules in that day. And so they're shocked by this. But we see they ultimately are silent, <laughs> right? They are, they're shocked by this, but they kind of know better and they don't really say anything. And then in verse 28, we see that she leaves her water jar and she goes into the town. So this is the response of the woman. And it's, it's really just a historical account. It's really just stating facts. She left her jar and she went to the town. But I think there's so much wrapped up in that one verse that this woman who had come there in the middle of the day to come and get water, and she's even arguing with Jesus about the well and how to get water. She's the one that's now left her water jar. She's left her water jar. This is an amazing thing. And we can see here her conversion. Her eyes have been opened. She's no longer coming to the well for physical water. She's left her jar and she's gone into the city to tell the people about Christ. She's no longer focused on the physical water, on the external things that her and Jesus were arguing about. Her eyes have been opened. She's found living water. She's found the living water. Jesus has opened her eyes to see this living water that won't run dry, that will truly satisfy her. And so we can say, using later revelation in the scriptures, this is salvation. This is the new birth that Jesus has talked about in John chapter 3. This woman's eyes have been opened. She's been changed. She's, no, she's left her job. What she came there for, she doesn't care about anymore. She's now changed. By the Spirit, we can say, we can use all this uh, New Testament language to talk about what's happened. She's been given a new heart. She's been convicted of her sin. And the Spirit is now leading her in this spring of living water that is welling up to eternal life. But we see that not only has her eyes been opened, spiritually speaking, but her mouth is opened. That not only is there this message of salvation for this woman, but proclamation. It says in verse 28 that she went into the town and said, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. As we read this morning in our um, assurance of pardon, David is crying out. He says, open my lips, open my lips that my mouth might declare your praise. He's praying to God, open my lips. And so we see this is this is what happens to the woman. Her lips are opened. And now she's declaring this Savior to the other Samaritans. So not only has her eyes of her heart been opened, but her mouth has been opened. Not only has there been salvation for her, but it's led to proclamation of what Christ has did for her. And you see the simplicity, the simplicity of the message. Right? Does she give some 45 minute long theological treatise? No. What's her message in verse 29? Come and see. Come and see. She doesn't even name Jesus. She just says, come and see. Come and see. 
So there's much to glean from that, and we'll talk about that a little later. So this is the message and witness of the woman. She's seen the risen, I mean, she's seen the Christ. She's had revealed to him that he's the Messiah. And she opens her mouth and proclaims, come and see. So, small break. We get kind of a break in the text. It's sort of interesting. It says that the Samaritans were coming to see him. So they've heard this message and we'll see their response a little bit later. But there's a little bit of a parenthesis in this account. In verse 31, it says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. (coughs) I need a microphone. (coughs) So it's seemingly a break in the conversation, right? We've seen the account of the woman. She's left. She's gone into the town, proclaimed Christ. And we come back to the Jesus with his disciples. And it seems totally tangential, right? It it seems totally disconnected and discombobulated, right? We're with the woman, and we come back to Jesus and his disciples, and they start talking about food and harvest time, and you're like, what is going on here? (laughs) The first time I read this, I was like, what is happening here, and how are these two things connected? And why is John writing the story in this way? But that couldn't be further from the truth. Hopefully we'll see why these two sections are connected. So we see the disciples are concerned about Jesus. They've gone into the city to get food. And they say, Rabbi, you need to eat something. They're concerned about him, right? His bodily needs. He's a human. He has hunger and thirst. And they're concerned about him. And I love what Jesus says. He says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And you can almost picture him (laughs) then being like, what? (laughs) You got secret food? Like, I don't know if this is so silly of me, but I always picture Napoleon Dynamite. The movie, if you've ever seen that movie, he stores tater tots in his his, like cargo pants, right? The snack for later. It's like, I have food that you don't know about. He's hiding this food. You're like, does Jesus have a secret compartment where he's hiding food? Like, what's going on here? And he says, I have food that you don't know about. And they're like, did someone bring in something? Like, what's going on here? And Jesus, again, just like he did with the woman at the well, he uses physical, external things to communicate spiritual, profound truth. Just like the woman at the well, they're at the the well. He uses water, living water, as a picture, as an illustration to communicate spiritual truth to her, her great need. And he does the same thing here with the disciples. They're talking about food, and Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So we see again, Jesus uses ordinary things to explain these great spiritual truths. And now he's using physical food instead of physical water to talk about what will sustain and delight him. What's gonna, what, is, what, is, what is satisfying to Jesus? What's sustaining to Christ on his mission? What gives him delight? We read in verse 34, it is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. If you want to turn with me just a couple pages to 
to John chapter 6, we don't see much more said about these words in this passage. And so we can ask the question, what is the will of the Father and what is the work of the Father that Jesus talks about here? What, is it, what does Jesus mean when he says, I came to do the will of the Father? We get the answer to this in John chapter 6. In verse 37, if you want to look there with me through the end of verse 40. It says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. (laughs) We get the answer, right? This is the will. What's the will? This is the will. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So we get an answer. What is the will of the Father? This is the will of the Father, that the Son should lose nothing of all that the Father has given Him, but raise it up on the last day. There's a lot to be said there, and we'll get there when we get to John chapter 6, but I, want to read, I wanted to read this quote from... The theologian John Gill, he says this about this food and the will of the Son. He says, just as food is pleasant and delightful and refreshing to the body of man, so doing the will of God was delightful and refreshing to the soul of Christ. One part of the will of God was to assume human nature, the incarnation. This Christ had done, and with great delight and pleasure. Another part of the will of God was to fulfill the law, secure perfect righteousness. This Christ was now doing, and this was his delight. And yet another part of the will of God was to suffer and die, atone for the sins of God's people. And as disagreeable as this was to the human nature of Christ, yet he did it cheerfully, and this Christ would do. And I'm reminded of the great verse, for the joy set before him. Sorry, there's a lot of words there. What is John Gill saying? He's saying, the will of God, the will of the Father, was that the Son would come, take on flesh, fulfill the law, suffer and die for his people. That's what John 4 is saying. That's what John 6 is saying. And even though this is contrary to the will of man, right? You think about Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, not my will, but yours be done. Does that mean Jesus has a human will and it's fighting against the divine will? It's, what he's saying there is it's disagreeable to his human nature. That it, in human nature, we don't want to suffer. We don't want to be in pain. And yet Christ, in submission to the Father, says, not my will, but yours be done. And we know this is ultimately for the joy that was set before him. So this will of the Father is for the Son to come and take on human flesh, fulfill the law perfectly, and suffer for sinners. And we see the connectedness not only of the will of the Father, but of the work of the Father. Right? The work of Him who sent me, I need to accomplish, is basically what Jesus is saying there. That Jesus, as we've talked about this many times, Jesus was sent on a divine mission. 
He wasn't just randomly going about doing random healings, random messages. He was sent on a mission to fulfill all righteousness and accomplish redemption. To bring many sons to glory. He didn't just come to be a good example, to be a moral picture of how me and you need to live our lives. He came to be the Savior of the world. So what Jesus is saying here in verse 34 is, What sustains and satisfies me, what brings me to life, is to do the will of the Father and to accomplish the work of the Father. That's what Jesus is saying there. I'm on a mission. I'm the second Adam. Adam failed in the garden. I've come to accomplish the work that he failed to do. And part of that work is connected to what we see in the next part of this account with all this harvest language. Jesus gets on this sort of tangent with the disciples. They're talking about the harvest, the fields being white for harvest. What's Jesus saying here? Again, he's using physical pictures of harvest and reaping and sowing to communicate the truths of what's going on as this message of Christ is spreading, not just to the Jews, but to the Samaritans. And he talks about not a harvest of wheat or a harvest of corn, but a harvest of souls, a harvest of souls that the field that he's talking about here, right? He says, is there not four months and yet comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. He's not talking to them about harvesting grains. He's saying, look, the Samaritans that were once outcasts are now being welcomed in. These people that were not a part of the kingdom are now being welcomed in. This woman is the first fruits of that. She is the first one of the Samaritans, and she is going and proclaiming this message, and I'm going to proclaim the message. And we're going to see, as we continue through the scriptures, if you remember in the book of Acts, chapter 8, we see the gospel goes to the Samaritans in a holistic way. The Spirit's poured out on them, and the gospel comes to not only the Jews, but to the Samaritans. And so Jesus is saying, Look around you. Stop worrying about physical food. Don't worry about my hunger or my satisfaction. My food is to do the will of God. (laughs) And the will of God is that his people might be saved. That I might accomplish the work that I have set out before me. And these Samaritans need to hear this message. And you are going to do that work. You are going to proclaim my life, my death, my resurrection to these people. They are the harvest. They are the harvest. Stop worrying about physical food. Now is not the time for that. It is time for the harvest and for the reaping. And we see the Samaritan woman gets this, right? She understands what's going on. She left her water jar. She left her physical thing. She's proclaiming. And the disciples are confused. There's a great contrast. That's why it's helpful for me to think about it the response of the woman and the response of the disciples because she gets it. She understands what's happening. She is out proclaiming she's left her jar. The disciples don't. They're worried about physical food. They're worried about their afternoon snack. She has left everything and is proclaiming this gospel of Christ. And so this should be convicting for us in a lot of ways, if we're honest, right? 
how often do we become consumed with earthly things? I mean, <laughs> how often are we distracted by earthly things? Like right now, I'm sweating. <laughs> it's very hot in here. There's kids and there's things going on, right? It's hard to focus. We can be distracted by earthly things, our earthly needs. Maybe you're hungry. Maybe you didn't get a donut. Maybe you didn't have enough coffee this morning. We can be distracted by so many earthly things. And yet we see this woman leave her jar and go and proclaim, come and see, come and see. We miss out on the spiritual reality of what's going on when we focus only on our earthly needs. Not that our earthly needs are important. I wish it was air conditioned right now. <laughs> it would be easier to focus. But what we're, what, it's just convicting to think about this response of the woman. She leaves her jar and she goes and proclaims. And so now in verse 39, we'll see the response of the Samaritans. The response of the Samaritans. So we've seen the response of the woman, the response of the disciples. And we see in verse 39, the response of the Samaritans. They believe. They believe. They believe. <laughs> These are the heretics. These are the people that have terrible theology. They worship on a totally different mountain. They don't have right worship. They have intermingled with the pagans of the world. These are the outcasts. They are believing the gospel. They are believing. They are the heretics and the half-breeds. These people are believing the gospel. And not only that, but it's because of the woman's testimony. It's hard to understate how radical verse 39 is. Not only are these heretics believing the gospel, but they're believing it because of the testimony of a Samaritan woman. In that day, women's testimonies were not believed. Even in the court of law, if a woman came to the court and had a testimony, they wouldn't believe it. They wouldn't enter it as evidence. That's how crazy it is that they're believing the gospel because of the testimony of this woman. John kind of carries out this theme. We'll see at the end of John's gospel, who's the first one to proclaim the risen Christ? Mary. Mary is the first one to testify that Christ is raised. So it's amazing that not only are the Samaritans believing, these heretics, but they're believing because of the testimony of this woman. And so they come to Jesus and they beg him to stay with them. So Jesus stays. Many more believe because of his word. And then verse 42 is kind of interesting. It says, they said to the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, but we have heard for ourselves that this indeed is the savior of the world. What are they saying here? Are they saying... You know, your story wasn't that good, but Jesus is way better, you know. And, and we don't really believe anything that you said. We're only believing Jesus. That's not what they're saying. I don't think that's what John's saying. It's the equivalent of, you know, maybe you're walking around and you tell someone about the gospel, about Christ, about forgiveness. And maybe they believe, like, that sounds like a good thing. And then they come to church and they hear the gospel proclaimed. They see God's people worshiping together. And they say, it's not just because of what you said, but now I've seen. Now I've seen and I believe. 
Now I've heard the gospel. I believe. And it's not just because of what you said, right? And I was even thinking about this myself a little bit. This was my story for most of my early life. That I believe sort of just because it's what my parents believed, right? I was in a Christian family. We went to church every Sunday. And so we did sort of Christian things. But it wasn't until I left for college, I left my family, where I had to say, am I going to believe this for my own or am I just going to leave my faith? And I, and I think something similar is going on. They're saying it's not just because of what you've said, right? For me, it, wasn't just, it had to not just be because of what my parents said, what my friends said. It had to be because I saw and I believed. And I think something similar is going on with these words here, that they're seeing Christ for themselves, and they're saying, it's not just because of what you said, but we have heard for ourselves that this indeed is the Savior of the world. This is indeed is the Savior of the world, not just of the Jews, but of the Samaritans, the Greeks, the Gentiles. They recognize that this gospel is not just meant for those in Jerusalem, not just the people from Abraham, but all people, all nations, all tongues. They marvel at this message of Christ, and they believe. So we see in verse 43, it says, After two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. There's much more that can be said about these verses. Theologians had argued about these for centuries. Because if you look at verse 44 and verse 45, it seems like it's saying two different things, right? Right? Jesus says, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And yet we see the Galileans welcome him. This is his hometown. So it, Jesus says, prophet has no honor in his hometown. And yet it says they welcomed him. And so people have tried to say, well, the Bible is contradicting itself. The Bible can't be trusted because of this. What's going on here? And I think how we can make the most sense of this is if what seems like a contradiction is really not. As we've seen in John's Gospel, there's people that welcome him that don't really believe. There's people that come to him that believe in his name, but they're only coming to him because of the signs that he's doing. Because this seeming message of peace and prosperity, and yet when the rubber hits the road, their welcome is superficial. Right? We saw that in John chapter 2. It says many believed in his name after they saw the works and signs that he was doing. But it says Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Jesus did not entrust himself to them. There's a very interesting account in Luke chapter 4. Where Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth in Galilee. And he reads the prophecy of Isaiah that says... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, liberty to those who are oppressed, and the year of the Lord's favor. 
And he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he's in a synagogue, he's with his hometown people, and he says, good news is coming. And they start clapping. They welcome him. They say, it says they marveled at what he said. They're happy. They're, they, they say, good news is coming to us. And yet, by the end of the account, they try to throw him off a cliff. They try to throw him off a cliff. I remember the first time I read this account, I said, this is in the Bible? <laughs> they start with welcoming him, and by the end, they're full of wrath. At first, they were marveling at what he said, and now they are brought to madness. Why? What changed? Jesus, basically, you can read it later if you want, he basically goes on to say that this message is not just for the Jews, but it's for the Gentiles. It's not just for the Hebrew people, but it's for the Samaritans and the Gentiles and the Greeks. And he uses these examples to show that. Why am I bringing this up? Why do I think this is a parallel account? Because in John's gospel, we see the same thing happening. The gospel has gone out to these other people, to the Samaritans, to the world. Not just the Jews, but the Samaritans and the Gentiles. And yet, this welcoming by the Galileans is superficial. It's superficial, and we'll see that next week as we look at the healing of the man's son. It's a superficial welcoming. They don't really want this message of Christ. They just want this message of good news. <laughs> like, you know, the year of the Lord's favor, that sounds good. All of our debts paid. All of our people that are sick made well. Jesus came to bring something greater than all of that, and they had missed it. They were focusing more on what he had done, his miracles, than on who he was. And so as we close this morning, may we focus on what Jesus has done. May we not be like those that focus on the miracles. May we not be those that just focus on this proclamation of good news with no repentance of sin, with no turning from our unrighteousness. And may we see the work that Christ has come to accomplish. He's the better second Adam. He's the one that came to bring many sons to glory, to crush the head of the serpent, to bring Sabbath rest to God's people. And we need to hear this this morning. Because if we're honest, most of us are working our fingers to the bone. We're tired. We're broken. We're needy. Those around us are broken. And we need to see that Christ came to do the will of the Father and the work of the Father, and He really did it. We fail. <laughs> we fail to do the work of God. That should be our food. Our food should be to do the will and the work of God, and we fail. We fail every moment of every day, but we see here that Christ did not fail. He came to bring many sons to glory. He fulfilled the law at every point. He never failed. And so that is our hope this morning. Our hope is not in ourselves. It's not in our ability to fulfill the law. It is in what Christ has done. It is what Christ has done. And so we see what this work of Christ did for this woman. This woman who was an outcast, a heretic, a sinner. It changed her. 
it changed her. She left her jar and she went and said, come and see. Come and see. And there's so much to glean from her simple words this morning. Romans 10 says, how will they believe if they have not heard? And how will they hear unless someone is sent? And how can someone be sent unless... I forget what it says. Let's look at it. Romans 10. How then can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This woman heard the word of Christ and she proclaimed. (laughs) She proclaimed. And that's what we do every Lord's Day here at Covenant. We proclaim the Lord. And I think it can be hard for many of us because we have normal jobs. We have normal lives. And there's this message out there in the Christian world of transformation. We need to transform the city. We need to transform the country. We need to transform the world. And as one of my friends says, I can barely transform my living room. (laughs) Right? I can barely transform my living room. (laughs) I can barely keep it clean. I can barely keep my life together. What am I to do? What am I to do? Hopefully these three simple words will be a comfort and maybe an exhortation to us. What do we do to a dying and sick world? What message do we proclaim to them? Come and see. Come and see the risen Christ portrayed portrayed through the public proclamation of the word. Come and see the forgiving Christ. For those that confess their sins, he abundantly pardons us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Come and see the gracious Christ who forgives our iniquity and our sin. But not only that, he gives us his perfect righteousness by faith. Come and see the glorious Christ who's defeated sin, Satan, and death and is worthy of all of our songs and praise. Come and see the covenant of Christ who has body was broken for our sins. His blood was spilled so that we might be made right. That's the message this morning. Come and see. And that's our message to a dying world. Maybe you don't have eloquent words. Maybe you don't have a theological treaty to give someone. Tell them, come and see. Come and see the resurrected Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. At the local church, come. Be a part of God's body where members are encouraged, where saints are grown, where our sin is confessed, where assurance of our pardon is given. Come and see. May we come and see this morning, and may we continue to do that as we partake of the Lord's Supper. So would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we need your help. We're weak, we're broken, we're heavy laden. And you say, come to me. You say, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Lord, if we're honest, our burdens are heavy this morning. 
we carry much on our backs, not only our own sin, but the sin of those around us, the turmoil of the world around us, Lord, and we are weighed down. And as we come to you this morning, may we see the risen Christ and may we take his burden that is light and easy. Why? Because he has taken it. He has taken the curse that we deserve. He's taken the burden that was meant for us and he carries it for us. So help us this morning to come and as we come to the Lord's Supper, may we see these great covenant promises of what Christ has done. That his body was supposed to be ours. His blood was supposed to be ours. And yet he came and suffered what we were meant to suffer. May we trust and rest in him this morning alone. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. As we come this morning, we're reminded that this Lord's Supper is a means of grace. It's... Um, it's instituted by our Lord, and it's meant to be spiritually nourishing to us, right? Just as Jesus used physical water and physical food to communicate spiritual truths, the same thing's happening here. These, these humble elements behind me aren't turning into Jesus' physical body or physical blood, but by looking to them, we are reminded of what Christ has done, and we are spiritually receiving and feeding upon Christ crucified by faith. It's with the eyes of faith that we behold Christ this morning. It's with the eyes of faith that we trust in the gospel, and so we do that this morning. So, if you're not a believer, or you're in unrepentant sin, or you haven't been baptized, we ask that you abstain from this meal, and we ask that you take time to contemplate what is the gospel? What has Christ done? And how does that relate to me? Because Paul has strong words for those that eat or drink in an unworthy manner, right? We don't want that. We don't want you to eat or drink in an unworthy way. But if you are a believer, we ask that you come to the table trusting in Christ alone. Having your eyes opened by the gospel just like the woman at the well. Having felt the guilt that we have before God repenting of our sin, and yet rejoicing in what Christ has done and trusting in him alone for salvation. So this morning we come confessing, but we come rejoicing. And so we'll just form a line here in the middle, grab the elements, take them back to your seat, and we'll partake of them together. So come as you're able.
we take the bread, this simple, humble element, and we're reminded that Christ's body, the manna from heaven, was given, broken, so that we might have forgiveness for all of our sins. In the same way, we take this cup of wine, reminded that Christ's blood was spilled. His blood poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of all of our sins, past, present, and future. to the tune of Amazing Grace.
receive our offerings where we're reminded that God has given us so much and now we give a part of what he's given us back to him. And I was reminded this week that it's not about the size of our offering. It's not about the amount that we give. It's about our heart behind it. And the New Testament calls us to give with joy, not begrudgingly, but um, out of gratitude for all that he's given us. So let's pray for our offerings this morning. Lord, we thank you for all that you've given us. And we're reminded of the woman that is contrasted with the Pharisees, who they went to the temple and gave great amounts of money and proclaimed and prayed outwardly how much they were giving and how great they were. And the woman came and gave two pennies. And Jesus said, she gave more than all of them. So this morning we're reminded that we have such humble things to give, Lord. And yet at the same time, you don't need our money. (laughs) You don't need anything that we could give you. And yet you call us to give um, out of gratitude and out of worship for all that you've given us so that your kingdom might advance, so your gospel might be supported and grown throughout the kingdom. Help us, Lord, this morning to trust in you and may you use these humble gifts for the advancement of your kingdom. Not for our kingdom, not for anyone's kingdom, but your kingdom, Lord. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Would you please stand with me and sing... Hymn number 13, the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father. Son and Holy Ghost. Amen. Receive the benediction from the book of Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Grace and peace of our Lord as you go this week.